Well, hey there. Before we get to the episode, I wanted to fill you in on two very exciting new releases from Mockingbird. The first is that the sports issue of our print magazine uh, is now available. The thing turned out beautifully. Could really honestly could not have turned out better. It uh, should already be in your mailbox if you are a monthly supporter of Mockingbird or a uh, subscriber to the magazine. I'll put the address of our magazine site uh, in the show notes for you to check it out. But this is not something you will want to pass up. And secondly, the Mockingbird Devotional Volume 2, which we're calling Daily Grace, is now available for pre-order. They're going to ship November 13th. This is a 365-day, very accessible, user-friendly, grace-centered devotional uh, written by over 70 different contributors, including myself, RJ, and Sarah, as well as the hosts of the Same Old Song podcast and lots of the writers that you'll recognize from the Mockingbird site. I've been using it myself for the last uh, couple weeks, and I could not be more proud. This thing is precious, but I invite you to run, not walk. You can get it on the art store or Amazon or wherever books are sold. All right, and now on to the episode. Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm David Zoll, your host, and in just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-hosts, Sarah Condon and RJ Heyman. We come to you every week to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace and its absence playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Good morning, you two. We are recording this uh, podcast on Wednesday, November the 4th, and I don't know how to uh, begin a podcast on Wednesday, November the 4th. Uh, a podcast is largely going to deal with uncertainty um, after the, the election uh, was last yesterday, and uh, it's uncertain as to who won and who lost, and it probably will be for a little while longer. I think we all lost, Dave. I think I think the results <laughs> are in. Isn't that the all lost. Oh my God, everyone well, lost. Clearly the... The, me- the media lost again, big time. We just lost, lost a year of our life. In and the we're the media, so we lost. I guess. Know? I guess we are. We're we're being media, <laughs> we're being media people right now. I mean, the media conglomerate that is Mockingbird mm-hmm. Ministries. <laughs> um, yeah, I just wanted to sort of do a groan all day. But mm-hmm. I'm happy to be with you. And before we kind of get going into delving into uncertainty and, and headlines and things like that, um, I thought it would be good to report some good news because uh, Halloween was this past week and we had a delightful Halloween in my mm. neighborhood. They asked like for not to have like people from the out outside the neighborhood come in, but like people did those shoots and things, and the candy was in. They're so fun. Was in, and people like made the shoots from like second story windows and like coming out of ghosts. And some awesome. guy did a big Lebowski themed shoot, and like the kids ended up getting enormous amounts of candy, like more candy than ever before. Folks were outside in fire pits and sort of at the end of their driveways, and you just got the sense that people wanted to celebrate and sort of bring some. Mm joy into it and um my kids had fun uh my my wife and i had a lot of fun i don't know how to go in florida and texas we did a trunk or treat at the church which was amazing actually and really fun and we had like i don't know a couple hundred kids that showed up for that it was super well organized so that you know people were safe um the problem is, like, we went in I'm a line. I'm glad you said that. I got nervous there for a sec, Sarah, I mean, but I'm glad you. you I don't you want anybody to turn me in. A um, social gathering. That's good. There was occasionally be like a couple of toddlers who was their first time trick or treating, obviously, clearly. And they were astonished at this table because, you know, people were told to put candy out on tables because it's safer. And they were astonished that, like, they could just keep taking candy and it would slow the whole <laughs> line up. So that was. Wait, actually, I can have more. <clears throat> I know. It's, they're so oh, funny. Can, they're like, wait, what is this? There's um, so much grace in that, though. It's like, I wait, know. this is free? I can have Just more? Just take as much as you want. I think, actually, for me, the sweetest moment was um, at the end, you know, people are packing their stuff up. And, of course, you know, we've got the priest kids. And Josh is like, hey, uh, take them around one more time. Uh, you know, just to like get a little more candy from what people have left over. But one of our sweet families, like she, you know, they don't, they, they're, they don't have 
small children at home anymore. So she just took all of her candy and dumped it in either of my kids. Uh, And they were just like... That's a moment right there. This is amazing. I was like, you may have just solidified their relationship with Jesus. Like, (laughs) thank you. So it was really, really beautiful. The amount Um, of people giving out full-size candy bars in our neighborhood, at least... (laughs) Was just it's like God. Just, God bless you. God I bless know. you. What about you, Rucker? It was great. You know, Marshall this year really for the first time <laughs> as a four like year old had like had 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 cognition of Halloween. So basically, since it hit October, he'd wake up every day. Is it Halloween yet? Is it Halloween yet? My wife had to print out a calendar so that she could cross out the days <laughs> until Halloween. And honestly, we were a little nervous because we were like, "What's gonna happen?" I don't right. know. But it was great. I think it wasn't. You know, people in our neighborhood said it was not quite as crazy as it as it usually is. But still, tons of people were out. Um, as I've said before on the podcast, this has been a hard time to move and make friends. And we definitely met like more families in our neighborhood, more people, you know, in that sort of three, four hour span than we had probably in the four months we've, we've lived here. Yeah. So it was really fun and he had a great time. Yeah. And way too much candy. Woke up at 3 a.m. with a really bad stomach ache, exactly how it should be. Um, <laughs> but it was, uh, <laughs> yeah. But it was it was great. I, I just Halloween is the best, man. It's like just the most. You know, when else do you walk up to your neighbor's house for no reason and like see inside and talk to them? And it's just the most yeah. community based holiday. I love it. I love it. It totally great. is. Yeah. 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 I was. I. I just three votes. Uh, three cheers for Halloween mm-hmm. and uh, pan- pandemic Halloween. At least for my kids, will be something they remember. I, they'll, they'll probably have the candy. Will probably last all year. Frankly, uh, we're gonna have to. We're, we're strategizing a plan other than just like mom and dad eating the candy every night. Oh, our candy goes home to its great reward like two days later. So <laughs> we're not. Yeah, as we've nice back, as y'all. There's, the, there's the one strategy you get like one piece of candy a day, in which case it lasts like six months, or you just let them binge on it. You know, sort yes. of like. Elaine style yes. in Seinfeld when she goes in the room and just chain smokes mm-hmm. cigarettes except mm-hmm. she never gets mm-hmm. sick of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Which I'm, that I'm more too. Exactly, it does it's like, it's like you I have can, candy yet? No, can, more candy. No, I can more eat candy. The, I can eat more. <laughs> well, let's let's move on. You know, the the again the context. I don't want to. Can we keep talking about Halloween? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Halloween is the best. Um, the only thing that happened this week. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So those listening, if you're listening to this in weeks from now, then you know what has happened with the election. We don't. And we're living uh, in a time of great we're uncertainty like already. We're talking back to the future right now. You know what I mean? Exactly. Um, <laughs> please don't judge us too harshly. <laughs> we, right. We were just like you. Right. Uh, <laughs> you're just like us. Jim. Yes. This is uh, so Oliver Berkman. He spoke at Mockingbird, and he's a British journalist who writes for the Guardian. And I ha- love this guy. I love his uh, his writing, and he's just started a new um, uh, newsletter, as many many journalists are doing these days, and it's called the Imperfectionist, mm. which I just love that name. And um, he sent out his second installment of it this week, which I thought was very germane to no matter what's going on, no matter when you're listening to this. Uh, which he wrote, sometime around the one-two punch of Brexit and Trump, trademark, I started to notice in myself, and even more in certain friends, a tendency I've only ever managed to describe as, quote, living inside the news. It was as if more and more people were shifting their psychological center of gravity, so the news was somehow realer to them than the concrete world of their work, family, and friends. I don't just mean that they were spending too much time online or addicted to social media, although they were and we are. I mean that the realm of presidencies, referendums, and humanitarian crises have become the main drama of their daily lives, with their actual daily lives relegated to the status of a sideshow. One huge factor here is the online attention economy, and specifically the way that scrolling, clicking, and sharing makes it feel like you're actively participating in the news cycle, not just observing it. But it's also because of the sense that these days we're, uh, we're living through history with a capital H. Maybe once we could treat the news as a soap opera or a drama happening exclusively to people in a far-off land, but no longer. The trouble is that human beings can't really function, let alone thrive, when their primary psychological identification is with things like the, quote, news cycle, or, quote, history, or the course of world events. This is the realm in which you exert zero individual control over what happens. So you deny the basic self-efficacy of successfully getting things done on which well-being depends. As mentioned, social media gives the feeling of doing something, but almost never delivers. Mm. 
To stay sane, you need at least one foot planted firmly in your world. The world of your job and neighborhood, that letter you need to mail, the pasta you're cooking for dinner, the novel you're reading with your book group. I hope you won't mistake this for another iteration of the popular advice that you should, quote, stop reading the news. As 2020 has shown, world events impinge on daily life far too often and too acutely for that. But it is an argument for reducing your emotional investment in the world of the news and reinvesting in your own. It also means heeding the message of one of the most mindset-shifting books I've read recently, which is called Overdoing Democracy, in which the philosopher Robert Talese argues that politics is so broken precisely because politics so completely dominates our lives and minds. We first have to nurture social worlds in which we don't relate to others primarily as political friends or foes if we're to build effective political coalitions. And marinating 24-7 in news panic is a terrible basis for finding the energy and motivation to spend a few hours a week volunteering or fundraising or otherwise actually making a difference. This is excellent. I mean, it does sound a little bit like um, being in the world, but not of the world, Mm. Um, which is interesting. Um, I, you know, this morning, of course, we woke up and we don't know what the results are. And, you know, I've have a solidly as long as we're talking about percentages a lot this morning you know two percent of me believes that god is sovereign at this point um and (laughs) that's a joke thank you for laughing rj and i was but my my daughter is getting up really early so i i had i sort of have this pattern of like i get up before everyone else does and have coffee and daylight savings time as it does for many parents has ruined that entirely because she's <laughs> up early and i don't know what you're talking about i know <laughs> and she's dressed like at like 6 30 she's like hey and so we you know i stumble downstairs i get a cup of coffee i'm staring at my phone and there's just you know it just it's just anxiety on a screen mm-hmm. and she's at that beautiful six-year-old stage where she says Mama, how you spell? Just over and over again. Because mm-hmm. she's writing. So she's like, Mama, how you spell unicorn? Mama, how you spell love? Mama, how you spell stinky? And I just put my phone down. I was like, this is the most important thing happening. She's learning to read. Mm-hmm. Like, she's learning to write. She's learning to communicate. And she's needing my help, which you guys know you've been parents that is a short stage once they get it they kind of get it and um and I get to be a part of that with her and it was like and I try to keep having those moments I mean even last night when I was going to bed this sounds very like um white lady Instagram and I'm okay with that I am a white lady on Instagram um but I was like I deserve at least six hours of sleep like this is dumb I'm not going to stay up and like completely ruin, like I have to get up and like parent people. And like, I have college students that I want to like be present to at lunch today. I ordered 18 bougie cupcakes to give to them (laughs) because everybody's going to need a lift at lunch. Like, I think the, the, I think that is actually a, a big fear I have of kind of, sort of the election meets pandemic is I think part of the reason this is so bad is we've all created kind of like mini prisons out of our homes. Mm-hmm. Uh. And in doing that, it's made us even more um, out of touch with the tangible, right? right? Out of touch with our neighbors, out of touch with our communities. Um, and gosh, I feel like the more isolated we make ourselves, the more easily accessible our anger is i don't know i just it just it just all feels very like cumulative right now yeah it's easy to make the news your life when lots of parts of your life have been closed down yeah yeah uh even though even though and it's kind of exciting right like we we all need in a weird way we all need a little drama or something like our life has been kind of of, of boring and it's, it's easier it's easier to live in another world, even if it's stressful, yes. dramatic, exciting, than maybe uh, sort of dealing with the the tedium of your day to day existence. You know, it's easier right. to to convince yourself that you know actually no, following the election is the most important thing, and not my daughter who's right in front of me who's right. learning, learning to read. Um, and there's also something in our culture right now where it, it seems almost heretical to suggest that this doesn't actually matter that much. You know, I, I sent you. Oh, it is heretical. You know, it is heretical. I sent you guys that that clip of um, 
the John Mulaney intro from Saturday Night Live, you know, this past week, he got some flack for it where he was talking about the election. He's like, let, you know, so okay, next Tuesday, we're all going to choose between two old white guys. And let's remember, it's not actually going to change hardly anything in our actual lives, <laughs> you know, and then went on to chronicle all these, um, you know, small little broken pieces of our lives that we all can relate to that the the presidential election won't actually have <laughs> Anything to do with there, um, you, the Onion had a I had got to interrupt, but they had a headline of like cynical uh, local cynic admits that a Biden victory might not cure his arthritis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Um, but it's not just politics, right? That we're all looking for other worlds to live in. We are all, and I'm thinking for myself, scared to live in the present. There's something so difficult about living in the the, the, the immediacy of our lives. Um, but it reminds me, you know, Stephen Paulson in his great little book, uh, Luther for Armchair Theologians, made this startling, like, wrote something startling that I'd never heard before. I'll always remember it, where he said that Luther said that the religion... The religions that were closest to Christianity weren't what you would think. They weren't the monotheistic religions like Judaism, Judaism or, or Islam um, or Buddhism or anything else. He said, actually, the closest religions were animism, were religions where people located God in the, in the trees and the water and the wind and the rocks, because at least um, those religions saw God at work in the world, saw God mm. present in the here and now, and that if you want to find where God is working, you have to sort of, you know, live in where you are, right? You have to open your eyes. You have to see what's actually going on. And that's a really hard thing to do. It is so much easier to live in a world distraction, whether that be sports or politics or, you know, theology or (laughs) whatever your particular drug is. Um, What do you think, Sarah? I mean, I just think sometimes... It's more beauty than I can handle. Like yeah. I do, I do think that sometimes. Like sometimes, especially when I, you know, to I know quote I, Ricky in American Beauty, the <laughs> plastic bag scene. My heart is going to explode. I yeah. just, you know, I know part of it is kids, and my kids are little, and I wish, I really genuinely wish, like it makes me almost cry that I could give every person um, a first grade kid to hang out with because they're so beautiful and so oblivious and but I do think that there's a part of I mean it's very like Capon-esque for me a little bit that we when we really are with our communities and we're with our people there's something about it that feels so like we are not in control in the most beautiful and terrifying way. Mm, yeah. And I think a lot of us um, turn to our rage and we turn to ourselves and we turn to our screens because because um, it's too much. Yeah. You know, I, I agree wholeheartedly with what you guys are saying. I think that – and one of the things about these elections that's important is it does return us to – reality a little bit in that you know it, it all the last at least two have revealed that the media is, is telling a narrative that isn't 100 percent true or it's least it's limited in what it's actually and and we love narratives we love narratives about ourselves yeah i'm this type of person and not that type of person or mm-hmm. i've gotten better at such and such but we love narratives about the country about right and wrong and good and evil because it basically gives us a sense of meaning it, it, it re-enchants yes. our lives in some way and I think it really gives people purpose who afraid that there is none and um, so there's a nihilistic impulse at the bottom of some of it and yet it's it's the same way I, I wrote these you know I tried to translate the Beatitudes this past week for the sermon I had to give and one of the ways I was trying to talk about blessed are those who mourn was translating as saying blessed are those who buried a loved one for the mm. for they've been returned to reality, which is where the dwelling place of God. And I, I really believe that. Like, God is in the reality of not the projection or the what the polls say uh, or the... Everything was conjecture. It was so hard for me to write for the... I had to do the weekend roundup for Mockingbird last weekend. It was impossible because it was all conjecture. It was like, well, if this happens, this might happen. And what if this happens? And this could possibly happen. And then there's a world in which this might happen. And there was nothing... I mean, I understand. That's a channeling of anxiety and fear and, and thought. 
But it was very little like, it felt like a way to escape ourselves. And also just like, what is present right now? We, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And yeah. uh, my, I, have the, I have the desire to flee the present by going to the past, as I've talked about, mm. through nostalgia. Mm. But, nostalgia, But yeah. this is sort of prediction addiction, you know, that we, we've talked about before that, uh, that was, we want to predict the future and live in that uh, narrative. Even if it's catastrophic, we want to live in what we think is going to happen so that we don't have to live right here. It's all the way of getting away from ourselves, I think. Yeah, as I was thinking, if I if I allowed myself to actually live in the present, like two things would happen. One, I would realize that I kind of need a nap. You know, yes. I think we're all, like I might just fall RJ, asleep. That is gospel. Yes. And the second thing is, my mind I would be not be able to take a nap because my mind would be flooded with right. all sorts of fears right. about the future. And I know, and, you know, and I know cognitively that wouldn't last. You know, that you, you there there might actually be a way through. But um, yes, yeah, staying busy, uh, living in the future, living in these imaginary hypothetical worlds um, keeps your keeps your fatigue. Because actually, fear and um, drama are energizing. They actually are. Like they'll, they'll they'll keep you you know they'll keep you awake, and they'll keep your fears at bay, at least for a little bit. Right. You know. Well, that's an amazing segue for to the next article, in fact. Um, but uh, people should subscribe to uh, Oliver Berkman's uh, uh, newsletter. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. This is from Lisa Miller in The Cut. She writes, My therapists were right about uncertainty. She begins, Michelle Obama wants to know if I have a plan to vote. The financial services company hopes I have a plan for retirement. My family inquires about the plan for the Thanksgiving menu. <laughs> and my colleague texts to confirm our after-work plan. It's a sign of my distress, I think, that my brain hears all these ordinary requests as assaults and responds with a shower scene scream. No, I do not. I do not have a single freaking plan. Uh, I have always been a planner, she writes, a control freak. I like a destination, a hotel reservation, a meeting place. I like to know what time dinner will be served and who's going to be there and whether the invitation includes a plus one. Planning, the neuroscientists tell me, is the brain's healthy response to uncertainty. It's hard not to know what the future holds. Stressful, they say. Making plans is the evolutionary defense against sudden movements, the proverbial tiger jumping out of the proverbial woods. I keep thinking about that word unprecedented. How until this year it was officious hyperbole, usually applied to some professional or athletic accomplishment. Now no other word describes reality more. And still my brain has questions. Should my kids sign up for the SATs? Should I keep bottled water in the pantry and gas in my car? Friends mention their own plans to hoard food, to leave town, to cash out, to buy in. And I'm filled with panic and dread. What am I supposed to do now? Fatigue is normal. One of the professors I interviewed reassures, when confronted with an isolated stressful event, the brain turns on hypervigilant. It wants to sort, prioritize, and develop defensive strategies as effectively as possible. But if that tiger in the trees feeling is not an occasional event, but a constant hum, the brain gets tapped out. Decision-making becomes sluggish or rash. It's embarrassing to concede that my that decades of my therapists have been right. I have, for my whole entire life, approached my future with the tiger in mind, anticipating danger and taking steps. This constant prognosticating, which I called drive, felt to me like a shrewd strategy, and I harbored the magical belief that it kept me safe, but I was wrong. My condition was diagnosable anxiety. To paraphrase, I was like, when's this lady talk about Lexapro? <laughs> to going. paraphrase the DSM, <laughs> excessive worry most days about everyday life. Now I've got a few more things to read from her, but I thought I'd stop before before we went further. Um, yeah, Sarah, this is our <laughs> this is our we, our biweekly so plug. This is our weekly shout out for meds. Um, so I preach on Monday nights uh, to my students, and so I always look at the lectionary for the coming Sunday. And so I actually have preached and I've also listened to same old song, which I highly recommend for any preachers listening out there, especially this week. It's really helpful so good. because the gospel is the, the, um, brides, 10, 10 virgins, the, ten, or the 10 bridesmaids. Yeah. Yeah. 10 bridesmaids. And the five the, foolish and the five. Wise. Yeah. 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 And, and the, the, it's just such a brilliant take on same old song. I preached it. It has stayed with me. I have to say, 
but but the whole thing is, you know, we're, we when we read this, we read it as such a morality play, right? Like it's like they're the good bridesmaids and they're the bad bridesmaids, and and in reality, they all suck, you know. And yes. um, <clears throat> I mean those those like wise bridesmaids. They were not nice ladies, no. you know, like the other bridesmaids were like, well, you share some oil. And they're like, girl, no. there is a gas station up the street. Good luck. <laughs> you know, shouldn't have worn heels. And so, so they miss out. And, but, but the whole point that, 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 uh, Aaron and Jake made that was so great was it was never about the oil. No. And when I read this, I think, you know, it was, it was never about getting the plan right. You know, it was never about the plan. It was about knowing that you weren't in charge. <laughs> it was about knowing that that Jesus was going to show up, right? And and being faithful to that. So this this kind of made me think a lot, actually, about that about that gospel text mm. because I think there are so many great metaphors in our lives for the oil. You know, of like, I you know, do you have a plan to vote? Oh my God, RJ, I'm not a planner. No, but I feel not. I'm not, but I feel really guilty about it. I feel oh, like okay. I should be a planner, you know, and I feel like I don't it's think men are planners. Sometimes it's hard on the people around me that I'm not a planner, and so I do. But I do the same thing. I I, I feel like I gotta get things done, and I make lists, and sometimes I cross them off. What I do find is when I go back and look at the list, I'm like, eh, about 80% of this stuff got done. Praise God. You yes. know? So I'm like, maybe I should just throw everything away and just wake up each day. And the thought which occurs to me is like, did Jesus have a plan? I'm not so sure he did, mm -hmm. I, except when he sort of set his face on Jerusalem, and he's like, okay, I guess we're doing this now. I guess I'm really going to go and get killed at some point, and that's kind of the plan. But I don't think he had a plan, and he seemed always very open to distraction and very present wherever he was, right? Like, for God, he doesn't show up, at, he doesn't show up in Bethany in time to save Lazarus, for God's sake, because he gets sidetracked by someone he barely knows that he has to heal their daughter. You know, he's, yeah. um, and yet, you know, he didn't have a budget to raise or, or children to raise, you know, things like that. Um, but I, I, yeah, I struggle with this. Um, I loved the story she told about the general, you know, who'd been in a, in a Korean POW camp and saying the people that didn't make it were the ones who were like, we're going to be free by Christmas. We'll oh, be free by Easter. Yes. It's, it's coming. But the ones who made it were like, we don't know when it's coming, but we're just going to kind of take things one day at a time. Mm. And I think that's really wise. Um, you know, we are in stewardship season, as many churches are, and um, a member of our congregation got up who's a doctor, and he said something really wise. He, he said, um, you know, the patients who always fare best are not the ones who are like, when am I going to get healed? When is this going to be over? It's the ones who just take things one day at a time and do the best they can every day. Mm. Um, so there's wisdom there's wisdom in that. So I, I'm, I'm not sure what the balance is, but I, I, I feel the compulsive need to plan uh, and the fear that comes with not having a plan. And yet, is it, is it worth it? Do, do, I, do I trust God enough maybe to just wake up every day with a little bit of joy and, and kind of see what happens yes. as opposed to be like, here are the things I need to get done today. And if I don't get them done, the world is going to end. Yeah. You know, well, um, I, which I is the way a lot of days feel. I get accused a lot as well in my some certain loved ones for not planning enough. And it's because y'all are men. I don't know how many times I have to say this. Men don't plan well. Sorry, you just don't. And, like, and some would say that women uh, overdo it in that regard. Or some might say that. <laughs> I would not, but some might say that. Some might I say that no some women... I have no idea what either of you are talking about. I disavow myself of this kind of these gross generalizations. are 37 years old and should very much have their planners on their phones and don't. They have giant memo paper planners <laughs> that they carry around manically. Some women do that. Well, well, I, I think that this is a, the planning divide, whatever it may be, is a real thing. <laughs> I, I have I've seen it happen, and it, it's not. It, it's uh, when someone feels uncared for because a plan hasn't been made. That's a real thing to take sure. seriously. Yes, yes. And yet, oftentimes, planning, as she notes, is a form of control, which is ultimately false because uh, what we plan for very often doesn't come to pass, and or at least when it, that's what the, the, this is a prediction stuff is so important. And what she says is 
with with the, that incredible story of the POW, um, that yes, uh, th- that somehow for her these plans were basically setting up an a expectations that then she, that would she would fail to meet, or that it was a, it was a mode mm-hmm. of controlling other people, but also setting these constant expectations that would then. Um, make her more frantic in terms of trying to control and, and, and eke some sort of safety. It's a lot about safety. So, um, but what Stockdale, who's the, um, who's the uh, admiral in that story, he recommends to sort of got through seven years of being in a POW camp. He says, instead of wishful thinking, he recommended, said, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. And the people, this is Miller speaking again, the people who study anxiety recommend something like Stockdale's advice. A clear-eyed, present tense look at the worst that can really happen instead of a frantic, reflexive habit of having expectations and making plans. Sometimes when I can't sleep, I make lists of the uncertainties haunting me, so they will feel both more real and more contained. Uh, The other thing this reminds me of is... um, I just finished uh, this wonderful show on Apple TV Plus called Ted Lasso, which is about an American football coach who is brought to England to coach a soccer team or over there. And he's what he appears to be this bumpkin-like guy with a with an accent and kind of uh, all this homespun wisdom. It turns out he actually knows exactly what he's doing because he uh, he doesn't understand the game, but he understands people, and it's mm. filled up with grace. And I recommend it, by the way. My my wife and I watched it together. It was it's one of these Friday Night Lights type of things. It's not actually about sports. It's about people. And there's a there's a phrase that he continually runs into in England. They constantly say uh, about sports. They say you know you don't hope that these guys will win because it's the hope that kills you. It's the mm. hope that kills you. And so he gives this final speech. He says, I don't know if that's true. He says, I don't, I don't like that phrase. He says, I believe in hope. And it says, it's a lack of hope that kills you. And what he does in that moment is he confronts the, he gives them the tools to actually confront uh, their their sad or difficult reality, not with an absence of hope, because that's not what we're talking about. We're but but with um, a clear, more clear-eyed, honest version of hope that says that ultimately good will prevail, but it may not in this particular instance. That doesn't that doesn't free us from attending to the present. You put up this quote on um, our Instagram from actually from Oliver Berkman. Yeah. That I have gone back to so much. Uh, And RJ, it reminds me of what you said, but I would like to remind you and also myself that you don't start each morning in a kind of quote unquote productivity debt that you have to struggle to pay off through the day in the hope of reaching a zero balance by the evening. Goodness. I mean, I think for those of us who uh, do have memo paper planners and for those of us who maybe should have done more for our wives' birthdays, that's a good word. That's a great word. And the, the rest of that, that's his, from his first, uh, he, so he said, what if you started the day with his, with like already in the black and like you didn't have I to do anything that. to earn your place on the planet. And he's really talking about Ooh. grace. And he said, anything yeah. that you got done was just a bonus. And he, he <laughs> talks about like, I know there are things people need to do, but we're so far away from that. We're, we're, we're running, yeah, we're so far away we're running after a zero balance that we'll never reach. And the, the psychological and emotional, spiritual uh, fallout from that is intense. Yeah, yeah the, the anxiety over needing to have a plan to, to live according to the plan prevents you. The, the anxiety prevents you from doing anything. You know, yes. for, especially with any joy or, or, or freedom, yes. you know, anything out of love, it's, it just because becomes compulsion. And um, the last thing I have to say about planning, and she, you know, she didn't even mention this, was all the planning, especially if you are in church, that you've had to do around COVID, mm-hmm. all the endless plans, the check-in plans, the seating plans, the communion plans, the um, ster- sterilization fogging plans... Um, it's it's exhausting and it, and it feels so kind of life and death. It's like I better get this plan right, you know, or people are gonna die. And mm, um, oh it's gosh, been striking. RJ, I'm sorry. Well, do you not? Does Josh no, not feel that? He's at totally all? having to do that. It's just sometimes I hear you say things and I'm like, I should be nicer to Josh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's funny when I when I talk to other priests and it's you know I'm like, so what are you guys doing for Christmas? And they're like. 
Oh yeah, yeah. We're good. we're supposed to talk about that next I don't week. Know. You know, it's like most churches have their Christmas plans set by like May yes. of the previous year, and now everyone's like, we have no cases are rising. We may or may not be open. Are we going virtual, indoor, have we outdoor? Ordered what will the weather be like? Can we sing? Like what? It, no one has any idea. Yeah. You know, well, it's like you you just have to hold all of your plans with the loosest possible hand. Well, you and have just to pray it, for grace. It's, it's an, faith is not an abstraction in this. I mean, what's the great joke mm-hmm. of the, in almost every faith tradition? Like, how do you make God laugh? Tell, tell him your five year plan. Tell him your plan. Tell him your five minute plan. Yeah. <laughs> you know, five. You tell him your Christmas plan. I'm also. I also like uh, on this first note. The Onion had another amazing headline this week. Um, this uh, local woman hopes she did enough worrying to help Biden campaign. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's funny. But you know, I I think that the it. So much of life doesn't go according to plan. That the best stuff. I wrote this in the. I wrote, I wrote a post about the sort of what some lessons learned from the pandemic and like, you know, none of the pollsters thought we'd be where we are here today. No one thought uh, a year ago that we'd be dealing with the pandemic in the way we have. No one thought we'd be asking the various questions. But again, you you don't also see foresee all the good things that happen in your life. You don't uh, you don't foresee uh, a conversion and you don't foresee falling in love. Like these are all things surprises go in the positive and the negative and uh to to acknowledge i think it's remember leslie jameson says that she's come to think of grace as a surprise or a miracle is the world is the universe letting you know it can still surprise you and Mm. um there are bad surprises like losing a loved one but there are also good surprises and the grace is a surprise i think i mean we had um i know we've talked about this a lot but i have to say on sunday we had a baptism it's the first baptism Mm. We've, I think maybe he's done, Josh has done a private baptism. It's the first like baptism we've done in community since COVID happened. And it was so hopeful. And, you know, we did it outside, which I just, the, the couple I just thought was so, I thought that was so remarkable because I know I would have wanted to be inside the church with, you know, all the pretty stuff, not outside on a school soccer field, you know, and the family showed up and everyone was dressed up. The men were in suits. I mean, it was just, Oh, it was so beautiful. And the mom's a nurse, which is just like amazing to me that she's had a baby as a nurse in the middle of a pandemic. It's getting the baby baptized. Anyway, it was so beautiful. And then we got home and we found out that Neil's best friend's grandfather had died of COVID, Mm. who Neil spent time with. And um, it felt like that really, and that's that I think is like the argument for like, actually being in the world right now and actually being in the reality of our lives right now. Cause it felt at first of all, it nothing could have possibly felt more like, you know, all saints, <laughs> but it just felt like that, like push of, of here is, here is this incredible gift of grace that you've been given in the same moment that there's incredible grief in the world and that, yeah. that God is holding both those things and has given you both those things. And I don't know. I just, I, I find, Oh, you guys, I love you so much. You can cut this TJ, but I just, I feel so much better than I did before I got on this call. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, you're going to feel even better after this next, next headline that RJ sent us. Um, oh, it's uh, Ooh. From, from Tedium, <laughs> Fahad Spernik wrote, wrote something called the Meet the Medieval Insomniacs. Now, um, we this is sort of a left field uh, subject, but it, it actually relates because both of you have spoken now a couple times about lack of sleep. And um, it's kind of a trending topic, you know, like what are people searching on Google at 3 a.m.? You know, everyone seems to be up from about 3 to 4 a.m. right now every single night. Well, this is this is is what he writes. This is what Fahad Sparin writes. Uh, Your great grandfather, like most good post-industrial citizens, probably went to bed around 10 p.m. and woke at 6 a.m. But his great grandfather almost certainly didn't. In pre-industrial times, Europeans typically had two blocks of sleep each three to four hours in length, joined by an hour or more of wakefulness in the dark. There was the first sleep, often called the dead sleep, followed by the second, or morning sleep. If it was given a name, the intervening period was usually referred to as the watch. That explains a lot of sort of fantasy... This is like a horror movie. Fantasy Jesus. world novels. Or, or the Bible. Or the Bible. <laughs> Which is synonymous. Well, a variety of rustic activities seem to await the midnight riser. Chores, study, chatting with neighbors, drinking or brewing ale, praying, 
even having sex, with one physician recommending the time between the first That's and second sleeps as the ideal time <laughs> to conceive. The odd thing is not that we used to do this, more that any mention of the practice virtually disappeared in the 20th century. So how did segmented sleep go from common practice to a dusty footnote? Well, decline in popularity can be traced around the development of gas street lamps in the early 19th century and subsequent develop of the incandescent light bulb by Thomas Edison, that great American enemy of sleep. That only compounded problems, shoehorning sleep into an unnaturally small window. This is what he says, uh, curiously, when you wake in the, the, the studies have shown when you wake for that hour of wakefulness in the middle of the night, you experience an uncommon cocktail of hormones relatively low cortisol and heightened prolactin production give rise to a calm wakefulness, a, quote, altered state of consciousness not unlike meditation. Jesse Barron, a, yes, a, a journalist who fell into an accidental segmented sleeper pattern after a spell of insomnia in 2016, concurred. Ordinarily a neurotic New Yorker for whom wakefulness and anxiety were synonymous, he instead found a hidden reserve of calm in the small hours. Now, the vanguard of modern sleep prophets all agree that we're not getting enough sleep. And they say that all the things, if you don't get enough sleep, uh, it makes you dumber, uglier, fatter, sadder, and sicker. Uh, it raises your chances of getting cancer, diabetes, Alzheimer's. But the imperfection of segmented sleep, this is the, this is the part that uh, I sort of, he drives something home akin to what we're, to Grace. The imperfection of segmented sleep is surely one of its main attractions. It offers time to sit and stare into the darkness in a half-hypnotic state, time to free associate. It is an antidote to relentless productivity. A lack of light forces us to submit gently to the demands of the night and be blissfully idle. This is a little odd, given the fact that most people think of waking up in the middle of the night as synonymous with anxiety, that that's what you're woken up with. But this idea that if the calm we're searching for might actually uh, not exist during this waking, this wakeful hours that we're cramming as much activity as we can. The time when no one is getting anything done, theoretically, this sort of mm. hour to two hours in the middle of the night, that was, that was psychologically, physically uh, a real gift to those living in uh, the medieval times. Well, I, I thought this was fascinating for a while. I first encountered this idea of first and second sleep in another article I was reading like maybe three or four years ago. And I, yeah, I just thought it was <clears throat> interesting. And the thing that is most um, relates to kind of Christianity to me is 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 the degree to which we we have this this law, right? This law of sleep. This is what sleep is supposed to look like. You're supposed to go to bed at ten o'clock and get up at six o'clock and have uninterrupted sleep. If that's not what you're doing, you better get on Ambien or something is wrong with you. And like, God forbid, you wake up at three a.m. and not be able to go back to sleep. Like, get that sorted out. You know, it's like just another thing to worry about. Um, and yet, you know, if we just let ourselves sleep when we want to sleep and be awake when we want to be awake, um, we might find a little bit more peace. You know, it, it kind of it reminded me, what, I think I've said this before, what my mother-in-law said to my wife when we had our first son, which was just like the most helpful thing ever. She said, um, you know, when it comes to mothering, just trust yourself. Mm. Like, you know what to do. Like, you've been made to do this. Just trust yourself. You know, don't go read, like, of course, we bought what to expect when sure, you're expecting in the first Everybody year does, and like all yeah. those books. We read them all. But that was far and away the most helpful thing anyone said. Just trust yourself. Like, trust trust what you need. Trust your, trust your body. And, um, you know, I used to make fun of my aunt because she would go to bed at like eight o'clock every night. And yet I got to say, I find myself falling asleep with my with my four-year-old son more often than I would care to say. And there's something nice about that. And then I have, you know, I have been waking up in the middle of the night and sometimes, I'm very, and my wife has too, sometimes I'm very anxious about it. And it's like, I got to get back to sleep. But there have been a few times I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to go with it and sort of think about things and let my mind wander. And I found it actually to be very helpful and 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 peaceful you know not to feel like i was doing something wrong or i was going to ruin my next my next day um but uh we could always use a little bit more sleep yeah um and yet there's such a guilt attached to it as well the, the the same article talks about how you know thomas edison used to brag that he only slept four hours a night but nikolai tesla who worked with thomas edison said 
Yes, that's true. But apparently, you know, he requires two, three-hour naps every day as well. <laughs> you know, so give me a break. I'm pretty sure um, uh, Kramer tried that once on Seinfeld. And it led to, led to disastrous consequences. Did it? Uh, what do you think, Sarah? How, how, how's your sleep life? Um, well, my sleep life actually is really good. I mean, <laughs> anxiety medication does help with sleep. So, because I would wake up in the middle of the night. You know, I'm I have like a phobia of swing sets. Don't at me. And I would wake up. I know it doesn't make any sense at all. Did you break I, a bow? Do you fall off one or break a bow? Nothing or traumatic ever happened to me on a swing set. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, my mom talks about how they would put me in the baby swing when I was an infant, and I would just scream and scream and scream. Like, of all, it's the motion. Anyway, I would literally wake up in the middle of the night seeing swing sets, unable to breathe. I mean, like, as an adult, like last year. And I've done all the therapy. And so medication helped that to stop, which is awesome. But I do mostly get woken up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning by kids who are scared of the dark. By a child, yeah. And I kind of love it, mm-hmm. which I like, I know is crazy, but I kind of, they're so squishy and warm and they are there and they need me. And I kind of love that. Cause I just, again, I know it's a short season and, um, and there's something funny about like, you, you know, you get, if you've gotten in bed with a kid you usually don't go right to sleep because they need water and they need to TT and they want to talk to you about what happened at school that day. And if it's my daughter, she will just continuously like, like just try to like shove her way underneath my body somehow. <laughs> and like, it's just, I don't know. I'm really thankful for that. Um, it's a sweet time when nothing needs to get done. Yes. It's such, it's exactly Dave. It's such a sweet time when nothing needs to be done. Um, and I don't know, I'm kind of learning to relax around the idea that I may need to take a nap. I mean, you know, and that's, and that's okay too. I mean, I think that's a weird gift of the pandemic. We weren't allowed to go anywhere for such a long time that um, I learned to like just let myself fall asleep on the front porch. The danger of that is that um, I would sometimes go out there with like just a sports bra on and I, I don't, I mean, I had pants too, but I just, I can't imagine <laughs> what the neighbors saw where I'm just like splayed out sports bra, mom roll, you know, book, like mouth half open, just like asleep. A little at drool PM. coming little out of the drool. corner. I was like, this is my Christian witness that everyone needs rest. So well, it's, it's, I love, I always love that Bible verse about uh, God gives, he gives his beloved sleep. Isn't that one of the, that's in there somewhere. Um, yeah. I think it's in one of the Psalms, mm. but I remember a few years ago, and I think I put this in seculosity that you find that Americans, the, the only way to sell them on sleep is to tell them it'll help them work better. Yeah. Make them more productive. Harder. Yeah. And now yeah. I'm getting, you know, after we did that episode on blands, not only is everyone out there sending me bland advertisements, which is fun. I love seeing them. But like we, we constantly get them. So we got a postcard yesterday for like the, I think like a sleep a pillow cube or something like that. A, a bland that makes this one thing and it was dying. Like, like it is destined to change the way you sleep forever. It will make you the best sleeper. It will optimize your sleeping so that basically you can just really, you know, kick butt all day, you know, and take names. You can really sleep the hell out yeah, of it. Yeah, just, and, and it's so, it felt so American to me that like I'm, I, there, there's this anxiety around sleeping that um and being the best at it that felt so unrestful and uh that that was always um i i, I, I love this moment because i i've i've had those moments occasionally what if if i woke up at three or four and i didn't feel this insane pressure that i was going to ruin my day or everything was what if it was actually kind of the norm and then people went back to sleep i mean that would be that would be more blissful than it currently is, where it's just... Just the term morning sleep sounds like the best thing in the world, yeah. you know? Because yeah. also what, what a lot of people do, especially I think older people, they wake up at 4 a.m. and they're like, oh, that's it. Up and at him. Going to go take a walk, walk the dogs. Like, I'm not going back to sleep now. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. and it's like, maybe you go walk the dog, you go back to sleep. One, yeah. one last thing I'll say is we're okay. talking about the cult of productivity and distraction. I can't remember where it was, but I remember a few years ago, I read an article from a woman who had grown up in the Soviet Union and been an adult in the Soviet Union and then witnessed the fall of the Berlin Wall, the end of communism, you know, Yeltsin, that whole sort of thing. 
she was lamenting the fact that <laughs> sex had been so much better under the Soviet Union because she said none of us were working that hard or obsessed with productivity. Oh, there was nothing good. There was nothing good on television to keep you up late. Right. Yeah, and and sort of it was sort of like the old, you know, it was like the most fun thing you could do. And she said, now that it's over and we're all like working so hard and TV is so much better. Yeah, no one has time for each other anymore. Mm. Um, and and she was really missing the intimacy of of living in a less productivity and distraction obsessed culture, you know, whatever the other sins of the Soviet Union might have been. I thought that was fascinating. The sex was good. <laughs> yeah. And hey, let's, I mean, don't we have an article today about how that, how, how love is all that really matters? Well, about to, <laughs> Wasn't there something go, about... I think Sarah's got one, one more thing to say. Oh, I just, I, I do wonder if part of this, how, you know, Dave, you're saying how deeply American this is. I mean, it's funny to me. I have heard this called like first sleep, second sleep. I love that the first one's called dead sleep mm -hmm. because i think ultimately our fear in like resting too much is death i don't know i think there's just like i think it's too close to death for us or something yeah. and so to just like let go and fall asleep on your couch like i just i think we're not gonna let ourselves do that yeah well you're not getting anything done so if, if vitality in life or, the, or sort of productivity right. in life or it's the same thing well then life. there's no room for uh, you know, sports bras on the I'll corner sleep when I'm on, dead. on the porch. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> well, let's let's transition to the last article, which came from uh, is Arthur Brooks writing in the Atlantic on one of the great paradoxes of American life. Now, this is a um, something we, we we dance around a lot uh, because it's so true. The great paradox is that while on average existence has gotten more comfortable over time, happiness has fallen. In short, uh, spoiler alert, happiness does not increase alongside affluence because we use that affluence to chase the wrong things even harder. As I think another Brooks, David Brooks, says that the first thing people usually buy with their money when they make it is loneliness. Hmm. But Brooks uh, ends with sort of a three different takeaways. And I thought I'd read the second two because one of them is very apropos and the other one is just timeless. The first one is don't put your faith in princes or politicians. He writes, if I complain that government is soulless or that a politician is making me unhappy, I am saying that I think government should have a soul or that politicians can and should bring me happiness. This is naive at best. Governments and politicians do affect our lives, but they cannot bring happiness. This point was driven home forcefully to me a couple years ago by Mogens Leittoft, the former speaker of the Danish parliament. In response to a question about Denmark's famously happy population, he said, government cannot bring happiness, but it can eliminate the sources of unhappiness. Or as, as we are fond of quoting the Martin Luther King, who says, the law cannot make you love me, but it can hopefully stop you from lynching me. Mm -hmm. um, but then he goes on and sort of brings it home. He says, don't, this is the, the big lesson, don't trade love for anything. I have referenced in this column before a famous study that followed hundreds of men who graduated from Harvard from 1939 to 1944 throughout their entire lives into their 90s. The researchers wanted to know who flourished, who didn't, and the decisions they had made that contributed to that well-being. The lead scholar on the study was the Harvard psychiatrist George Vaillant, who summarized the results in his book, Triumphs of Experience. Here is his summary in its entirety. Happiness is love. Full stop. The current director of the study, psychiatrist Robert Waldinger, filled in the details. He told me in a recent interview that the subjects who reported having the happiest lives were those with strong family ties, close friendships, and rich romantic lives. The subjects who were the most depressed and lonely late in life, not to mention more likely to be suffering from dementia, alcoholism, or other health problems, were the ones who neglected their close relationships. What this means is that anything that substitutes for close human relationships in your life is a bad trade. Sometimes money can be that thing, but the point goes much deeper. You will sacrifice happiness if you crowd out relationships with work, drugs, politics, or social media. The world encourages us to love things and use people, but that's backwards. Mm -hmm. Put this on your fridge and try to live by it. Love people and use things. 
you know, it's the law, but it's a beautiful one, and I think it's a true. Uh, uh, don't princes and politicians cannot make you happy, and uh, don't trade anything for love. I'm at a time in my life, uh, which is midlife, and dealing with mostly sort of uh, other men in that same area, where I just see people doing nothing but trading, uh, <laughs> trading things for love. Yeah. And um, usually in the pursuit of some career goal that is just out of the, that productivity debt that we talked about earlier is always sort of retreating into the distance. Um, and then it makes the rest of us want to also, you know, give up love for those things. But um, we're always sacrificing. Anyway, what, what do you think, guys? There's this uh, really expensive uh, interior design store that I absolutely love. And I'll go in there and I'll buy like their little gifty things because those are basically all that I can afford. And they have this set, they have these, this pair of lamps and they are giant and this beautiful white and they've got gold accents and they have um, a Buffalo check lampshade. And I have looked at these lamps for a whole year and I have wanted them <laughs> so much, but these lamps are $175 a piece, which is more than the lamps at Target. <laughs> and um, I was in the store. My mom came into town probably a month ago, and she loves that store for the same reasons I do. We never spend a whole lot of money there. We get their little decor stuff. And I looked at those lamps, and I looked at her, and I said, you know, I wish I, I, wish I could buy those lamps. I think that I would love those lamps for my whole life. I just think they're so beautiful. And she looked at me and she said, why don't you buy one lamp and I'll buy the other. And I bought the lamps <laughs> and they're in my bedroom and they are so beautiful. And my husband has said, um, and I love that they're in our bedroom, right? They're not, they're not in the rest of, we're the only ones that see them, right? They're not in the rest of the house. Um, I have had a friend over in a mask to look at them just to be clear, but, um, but, but, you know, my husband said, Josh is so funny. He's like, they, they do feel very big and like, they're kind of closing in on me, but I know you love them. Um, but I, they're so, they, they're so beautiful, but what, what brings me so much joy about those lamps is that my mom paid for one of them and insisted that we get them. And so, I think as somebody who actually really likes to buy stuff <laughs> and likes like beautiful things, I do want to also affirm that, that there can be great love and great beauty in those things. Mm. Um, Cause that has, that's definitely been true for me. And um, I, I also understand fully you know, and I love this idea that we don't use people, we use things. Um, and I certainly have come to know that more intimately during the pandemic. Uh, it's been such a clarifying thing in terms of relationships, and it's been such a clarifying thing in terms of our family. Sarah, I know exactly what you mean. Someone once gave us a $25 gift certificate to Crate and Barrel. And I was like, we still have that. Cause we're like, what are we supposed to do with $25 to Crate and Barrel? Thank you. I'll buy a mug. And you I'll can love. get a Christmas I ornament. I could get a Christmas ornament. You just need ornament, to add $2 need. to that. I need more. Um, yeah. You know, the cliche is like, you know, you think you own the stuff, but the stuff, you know, you think you own the stuff, but the stuff owns you. Yeah. Um, and I feel that. Like, I, I you know, long-term listeners will know I, I have a little bit of a car thing I like. That sounds weird. I have cars, and so we have a few older cars, which were cheap, and I love them, but they're always breaking down, and I'm always stressed out about them. I'm like, is this worth it? I'm not sure it is. <laughs> but with regard to love, um, yeah, there's nothing that has made me sadder over the year when I hear someone tell a story like... You know, yeah, I was really in love with this girl or this guy, but we were just out of college and the timing wasn't right and we really needed to pursue our careers or go to grad school or I was headed into, you know, um, uh, yeah, you know, I was going to medical school, something like that. And so we, we, we broke it off even though we were totally in love or, um, yeah, we're going to get married, you know, but for the first year we're going to live in different cities a thousand years apart because we just, and I just, I'm like, dude, I'm just like, no, please, no. Like yeah. nothing 
you think it matters now. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter. It doesn't matter. All that matters is that you have someone that loves you, that you wake up to next to, and you wake up in the middle of the night and have there and do things and wake up in the morning and... In the watch. That's all that matters. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, in you the say? watch of in the, the night. Watch. In the watch, exactly. The sexy Lexi watch. <laughs> what happens in the watch stays in the watch. <laughs> That's right. What'd you say, Sarah? The sexy Lexi watch. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> You know, th there you go. It's all that matters. And so I, I love this. Uh, and actually, I own that book. I bought that book because I heard about it on NPR like five years ago. I think of, it's like 800 pages or something insane. So I think I read the first 10. I was like, yeah, this isn't happening. But um, I'll put it I'll put it next to my bed for the watch. Yeah, because when you say happiness is love, full stop, I don't think it's – we immediately think that that's the uh, – you know, rom-com version of the, the meet cute, uh, sort of mutual obsession. Yeah. And that stuff is great. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. I, you need a little you of need, that. I'm going to say it. I'm, 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 the, I'm the guy who keeps watching those before sunrise, before sunset movies. You are that guy. Uh, but I think that it's also I could a, never um, talk that much. love is, love is something, you know, as they say, it's something deeper because, you know, I also have a Sarah, I have a, a dollar relationship with things myself. And for me, it's like, you know, I just got a pack wax packs of Goonies trading cards from 1985. And like, I, I or garbage pail kids is what we've talked about starting lineup figures i'm a collector i always have been for me those things though they are um, associated with times in my life and with people specifically that i find um you know a, a certain amount of it, it translates to love that basically mm -hmm. a time when i felt loved or i felt uh, hope um or uh, it's it's a lifeline back to something that probably didn't exist in the way that i think it did but is is nonetheless a conduit of love that that's what most of the, the ephemera that i'm surrounded with because it's childhood what we can know was safety and belovedness and so um that's what's going on, I think, for me. So it's not like the thing people... Uh, it's not a dichotomy that's that clean all the time. Um, right. And yet this notion that not that, that love is above all else is not just some saccharine thing we say at weddings and read from 1 Corinthians or 1 John, but it's at the heart of who God is, you know? And of course, yeah. what, we, what we find in the Christian faith is not that the command to love is the law, but the uh, announcement that you are perfectly loved in spite of your inability to love perfectly, that you're perfectly loved, like that's the gospel. That's the gospel for the people who are uncertain, uh, full of uncertainty for those who, um, you know, make the, the headlines their own lives, you know, who are absorbed in that thing that Berkman talks about. And it's for those who wake up in the middle of the night and can't seem to just enjoy it. I think that there's... Uh, mm. That's, I mean, that's that. That's where I go to it as a Christian. It's like I'm holding on to the to the to the proclamation that I'm loved, and not just the proclamation, the demonstration in in yeah. all sorts of beautiful instances of life that this is true. We just don't want to miss those, you know. I mean, I I prayed that with my students the other day. Like, we just don't we don't want to miss those. Yeah. I think, and that's easy to do right now. It's easy to miss out on. The beautiful creativity of your neighbors trying to figure out how. Yeah. It's easy mm. to miss out on, you know, the fact that this has been a really hard seven months, but it's also been the seven months that Annie Condon has learned to read. Like, mm. it's it's like, you know, I just pray for, especially for people put into my care, that, like, they can actually see that God is, like, moving in their lives. I, I just, yeah, mm. I, I, I pray that for us. That's a beautiful prayer. I also want to give a shout out to um, the love of friendship. Oh yeah, you know because I'm—I'll be honest—I'm—I'm I'm bad at that. Like I'm not good at. I think guys, uh, some guys struggle with that oh, with yeah. with with keeping up. You know, with checking in. And I have a few a few friends in my life who are so faithful, and they just show up. You know, and and the the difference that that makes in in my life. It's, it's not just romantic love he's talking about. He's talking about relationships. No, no, it's friendship. Yeah, yeah, friendship. Having people who know you, who love you, who want to spend time with you that you want to spend time with. Like, that is hugely important. And I, I do think, for men especially, that is something that gets gets lost sometimes. You know, between... You, you, even the people you, you think are your friends, they're kind of business relationships, or like, you might do a deal, or that there's some kind of productivity involved in it, and and 
to have friends where that's not part of the equation at all, I think is, is important and a blessing, mm. you know, when you, when you have it and you want to, when you find it, you want to value it, care for it. Soapbox. I know exactly, exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> this is a, it's a great, great blessing of this time of life that if, if uh, but I mean, that's the prayer, though, Sarah. I think uh, these, this arrives in people's lives in different ways. I think it's usually of God, um, and it's again, it's not the result of a plan. I mean, a, very occasionally can you plan to make a friend. Um, right. But it happens, and, uh, you know, what a wonderful gift it is when it does. And the prayer to that, that God would give us eyes to see and ears to hear when, when, when that is coming through the, the radio, and uh, as well as the everything else. I mean, I think that that's a beautiful, beautiful prayer to end on. So, um, Lord, give us eyes to see the love with which you've surrounded us, even when we can't, uh, we don't believe it. Yeah. Amen. Amen. All Amen. Right, you Go in peace. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. See ya. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.embird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at embird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by TJ Hester. And if you like what you've heard, please drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating or review. Until next time.